Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 11, Episode 7, The Rise of the Qing Dynasty. As we discussed in the previous episode, 1644 was a critically important year in Chinese history. The Ming Dynasty losing Beijing to a peasant rebellion and the Qing Dynasty seizing the city and declaring that they possess the Mandate of Heaven are both dramatic and exciting events, but a portion of the massive rebel army led by Li Zicheng had formerly parted ways with their leader and followed a charismatic alternative. Zhang Qianzhong was a peasant who had joined the Ming army and at one point had been sentenced to death for violating some of its rules, but his life was spared by the intervention of his senior officers. Later, he abandoned the army and joined with Li Zicheng's rebellion, but the two parted ways in 1643, with Zhang Xinjiang taking part of the peasant army with him and eventually gathering around 60,000 to his cause. They seized several important provincial capitals the same year, and Zhang Xinjiang declared himself the founder of a new imperial family, the Xi dynasty. While his army had great success when they managed to appear where they weren't expected and quickly seize a city, they were less skilled in defending these places and were soon driven out by Ming army counterattacks. In 1644, after being driven out of Hunan province, Zhang Shenzhong took his army and seized several cities throughout Sichuan province in south-central China, including the provincial capital of Chengdu. He used Chengdu as his own personal capital and held court there. By most contemporary accounts, Zhang Shenzhong's rule of Sichuan's province was nothing short of a catastrophic disaster. While it is believed that he enjoyed great popularity among the people at first, he grew paranoid when he heard reports of advancing Ming armies coming to dethrone him and feared that the people would turn against him to gain favor with the Ming. His fear was not entirely unfounded as Ming loyalists seized a Sichuan city in 1645. Since this took place after the death of Emperor Chongzhen, this was technically an act of the Southern Ming Dynasty. Historians differentiate between the Ming and Southern Ming, using the seizure of Beijing by peasant rebels and subsequent death of Emperor Chongzhen as the dividing line between the two. It is difficult to be certain about how much of Zhang Chenzhong's reputation as a psychotic dictator and mass murderer is real, and how much was based on exaggerations from those who defeated him, but I think we can be certain that life in Sichuan under his reign was pretty bad all around. It is likely that not all of the unpleasantness was directly the new emperor's fault. The region was beset by natural disasters, famines, plagues, and widespread banditry even before the arrival of the new regime, but I don't think we should assume total innocence on his part either. Using a generous estimate, the population of Sichuan province under his rule was reduced to about a quarter of its previous number. Some of these losses were attributed to mass killings ordered by Zhang Chenzhong, but much of the depopulation was also due to immigration. The Qing dynasty was aware of Zhang Chenzhong's actions, and certainly understood that they would eventually need to take Sichuan province if they hoped to rule all of China. Shortly after they seized Beijing in 1644, however, they had much more immediate problems. The southern Ming were already preparing counterattacks against cities which had been taken by the Qing, and while their dynasty and armed forces were on the ropes, 
they were by no means completely defeated. Dorgon, the practical leader of the Qing dynasty during the minority of Emperor Shunji, prepared to take on the Ming loyalists and to continue the general trend of his brother and father toward synthesis between Han and Manchu. In 1645, he issued an edict declaring that all men in Qing domains should shave the front half of their head and wear the remainder in a long braid down their back. This was the traditional hairstyle of Manchu men, which in English is called a queue. That's queue as in printer queue, not queue as in pool stick. Han Chinese officials were also married, sometimes en masse, to Manchu brides to ensure their obedience and loyalty to the new dynasty. The infamous Q order came with a promised death penalty for any who refused to comply. Many historians are critical of this edict, which led to some small-scale rebellions against Qing rule by proud Han families, whose adherence to Confucianism informed them that one's body should be preserved intact. Han Chinese men, and indeed many other ethnic Chinese groups, grew their hair long and never cut it, considering it a sign of slavery or emasculation to shave one's head or cut one's hair. Ironically, the new Qing leadership argued that it was Confucianism that inspired them to give the order. The sovereign was like a father and his subjects were like his children, and shouldn't children resemble their parents? Still, resistance from many Han subjects meant that the rapid expansion of the Qing would be slowed somewhat, as the need for garrisons in surrendered cities grew in response to demonstrations, refusals, and outright rebellions. In spite of the Q order, it is wrong to picture the Qing dynasty's rise as being nothing more than forceful conquest and coercive cultural synthesis. Disillusioned Ming generals continued to frequently defect when the Qing army came within their sphere, and they were not alone. Whole cities sometimes chose to self-annex into the Qing domains, often executing the scholars and officials who did not likewise accept the rule of the new sovereign. It is partly because of Ming army mass defections that the Qing armed forces became a fortified modern army. Their warriors had great difficulty in the past against the more impressive Chinese gunpowder weapons, and you may recall that the dynasty's founder, Nurhachi, was killed after being severely wounded by a Chinese cannon. Ming army defectors brought their modern weapons, ammo, and powder along, fortifying an already very efficient fighting force and sharpening its teeth considerably. In 1646, southern Ming incursions had been beaten back, and it was time at last to deal with Sichuan province and the so-called Xi dynasty. Zhang Qianzhong responded to the incursion of Qing forces into Sichuan by retreating into Shangxi in the south and ordering his soldiers to massacre the civilians in the former capital of Chengdu on his way out of town. Thankfully, records indicate that these soldiers refused this order and defected to the Qing at their earliest convenience. The Qing army caught up with Zhang Xinjong in early 1647 and killed him, either in open battle or through assassination made possible by a defector. However, the Qing were not the only faction vying for control of Sichuan. The southern Ming decided to make a play for the province and soon engaged with the Xi dynasty dead-ender forces which controlled the Yangtze River via a naval force. The Qing army, meanwhile, was unable to find sources of supply in the region which had been devastated by famine, natural disasters, and massive depopulation, and so they withdrew for a time. 
The southern Ming armies in the area grew desperate for supplies, which they repeatedly requested from the southern Ming court, which had by now relocated to Guangzhou, the capital of Guangdong province far to the south. One factor which certainly didn't help the southern Ming to rebuild their crumbling empire was the phenomenon of its leaders going rogue. In 1646, one of the emperor's brothers declared himself the Prince of Wu, essentially trying to establish an area in eastern Sichuan province as his personal independent domain. Another brother declared himself emperor later that year, and the two fought over the remnants of the southern Ming until one remained, who is remembered as Emperor Yongli. He would have the distinction of being the final emperor of the southern Ming dynasty, though his rule would stretch on for 16 more years. In the ensuing decade and a half, the Qing armies would generally get the better of the southern Ming holdouts, though this was hardly a clear-cut progression and included many reversals and counterattacks, the details of which are beyond our scope. Regardless of southern Ming successes, the trend over time favored the Qing dynasty, who managed to avenge their reversals and drove the southern Ming ever southward and eastward until 1662 when Emperor Yongli of Ming was captured by General Wu Songwei and executed. You may recognize the name Wu Songwei. He was the Han general who allowed the Qing army to safely cross the Great Wall at Shanghai Pass back in 1644, allowing them to take Beijing. 1662 marks the end of the southern Ming dynasty. This did not mean, of course, that the ascendant Qing dynasty was finished with its conquests, nor that its last enemies had been defeated, nor that it was an entirely unified polity. The Qing dynasty's newly acquired national power was dependent upon the cooperation of generals, officials, and administrators who had formerly been loyal to the late Ming dynasty. Hong Taiji had set forth a policy that essentially boiled down to let the Han govern the Han meaning that high-ranking Han Chinese defectors would be given broad authority as governors of distant domains, especially throughout the South. Powerful regional leaders can be very useful to a central government, provided said leaders are loyal. Now that they were free of Ming micromanagement and observed the unpopularity of Qing domestic policies, especially regarding the new legally mandated hairstyle, some of these powerful leaders believed they had an opportunity. In late summer of 1673, the Qing dynasty would face a series of revolts from several potentially dangerous sources. Far to the south, the Han governors of three provinces all rebelled against their new overlords after the emperor had tried to convince them to retire. Emperor Kangxi offered them lavish estates in Manchuria where they might live out their golden years, and the three Han governors requested to be allowed to retire in their home provinces instead in their own time. The emperor granted their request but continued to press for an immediate retirement. This golden parachute was publicly interpreted as an insult, and all three declared that they were now opposed to the Qing and fought on behalf of restoring Ming rule. At the center of what became known as the Revolt of the Three Feudatories was none other than Wu Songwei, the very same man who had opened Shanghai Pass, later murdered the last emperor of the southern Ming, and now appeared to suddenly be very keen on restoring Ming rule. The name Wu Songwei was, for centuries afterwards, used as an epithet for a treacherous individual, similar, I believe, to the way Benedict Arnold's name is invoked in the United States. While he may have had perfectly legitimate reasons for his actions, 
the guy certainly strikes me as kind of a snake. Regardless of his motivations, Wu Songwei had long been a competent military leader, and by 1673, he had a lot of experience in warfare. He also appears to have believed that his fellow Han Chinese around the nation would be eager to join him and expel the Manchu dynasty. He and his subjects cut off their Q braids and soon drove Qing allied armies out of Sichuan and Hunan provinces, expanding their control over much of the rich Chinese south. While the largely Manchu Eight Banners armies continually flagged against these rebels, the Green Standard Army, which was largely composed of Han soldiers loyal to the Qing, met with great battlefield success against Sangwei's forces. The fighting stretched into the late 1670s, as Wu Songwei kept the Qing armies busy with reconquering areas which he had subjugated, and stayed one step ahead. In 1678, he proclaimed himself the founder of a new dynasty, which he named the Zhou. You may recall that this would be the second Zhou dynasty in Chinese history, as the first ruled China in the 1000s BCE. By invoking an ancient and traditional name, Wu Songwei was probably making a play for the traditionally minded among the Han Chinese, perhaps hoping that some who had supported Qing dominance might support his claim if given the opportunity. It is possible that this political strategy may have yielded some more significant results, but Wu Songwei's plans of imperial usurpation were put on hold permanently when, a few months after proclaiming his great Zhou dynasty, he died. His son took up the cause, but does not appear to have enjoyed the same respect, influence, and battle savvy as his late father. The revolt of the three feudatories found critical support in one Zheng Qing, the king of a nearby eastern island which the Qing referred to as Dongning, but which has a more familiar name for modern audiences, Taiwan. Qing's father, Zheng Chonggong, had given naval support to the southern Ming dynasty and even gone to war against the Dutch East India Trading Company to prevent them from allying with the Qing. As a result, the Zheng family ruled over Taiwan as well as some outlying islands, and the Dutch had been expelled from Fort Zeelandia, which was their base of operations on Taiwan. The Qing forces, largely spearheaded by the Green Standard Army, wasted little time after the death of Wu Songwei and pressed into the south, conquering cities and forcing the so-called Zhou dynasty to retreat south. The land army reinforcements sent by Zheng Qing were defeated in 1680, and by late 1681, Wu Shifan committed suicide as the last vestige of anti-Qing resistance in southern China was utterly destroyed. In 1683, naval forces under Qing command had met with numerous successes against Zheng Qing's navy, and the island of Taiwan was effectively annexed into the Qing Empire. While the Southern Ming Dynasty technically ended in 1662, the annexation of Taiwan officially put to death any further hope of Ming restoration, as many Ming princes had taken shelter with Zheng Qing and were now securely in custody or dead. Now that much of China proper was subdued under Qing hegemony, they could set their eyes on the periphery, where further conquests and annexation awaited. However, it would take some time to bring Central Asian areas under their rule, as the China which they had inherited from the Ming Dynasty was still reeling from decades of plague, famine, warfare, starvation, depopulation, and economic collapse. Emperor Kangxi of Qing would need to walk a fine line between his foreign and domestic policies. 
Luckily for the Qing dynasty, Emperor Kangxi appears to have been precisely the right sovereign to walk this fine line. Although he blamed himself for the revolt of the three feudatories and the many lives that were lost in that struggle, he was determined to learn from his mistakes and set the nation on the right path. He organized a secret communication system between himself and officials whom he personally knew and trusted who worked in the provinces. Through this system, which bypassed the filters of scholar officials and bureaucrats working in the palace, he was able to receive accurate assessments of conditions throughout his domain and plan accordingly. He arranged for the unemployed and desperate in urban areas to be relocated to vacant farmland in many parts of the nation. Throughout the early part of his reign, his agricultural policies were so effective that tax revenues from farming dwarfed nearly all other sources of domestic revenue. The Mongols and the Manchus had a complicated history, but a lot of Mongols defected to the Qing dynasty under the reign of Ligdun Khan in the early 1600s, a Khagan who wanted to unify the Mongol tribes under his leadership, but whose political support of the Ming dynasty and tendency toward violent coercion made him unpopular. Inner Mongolia, which borders China proper, had largely allied with the Qing by the time of Emperor Kangxi's reign, but Outer Mongolia was still outside their control. When a powerful Khanate of Oirat Mongols from Outer Mongolia called the Dzungar attacked one of the Mongol groups which the Qing were allied to, Emperor Kangxi found an opportunity to begin annexing Outer Mongolia and gain the fealty of those in Inner Mongolia, who begged the Qing for help against their more powerful enemies. The first Dzungar-Qing War lasted from 1687 to 1697 and was a grueling affair. The Qing armies had to cross the vast Gobi Desert to bring battle to the Dzungar Khanate, and even when they managed to score a victory, their enemies would melt into the mountains and disappear for the moment, only to re-emerge later with more conscripts and recruits. To his credit, Emperor Kangxi actually traveled to Outer Mongolia and led troops personally on occasion. At the Battle of Jaomodo, the question of whether Outer Mongolia would be the domain of Galdan Khan of the Dzungars or Emperor Kangxi of Qing was answered decisively when a detachment of the Dzungar army stumbled into a vulnerable area, seemingly by accident, and found themselves quickly surrounded by Qing forces. The Dzungar detachment was encircled completely and all of their attempts to break away through the Qing horde were largely failures. Outer Mongolia was now under the authority of the Qing government, though this would not be the last time the Qing tangled with the Dzungar Mongols, who now relocated to Tibet. Galdan himself died soon after the Battle of Jaomodo, but his descendants carried on resisting the new lords of China in his memory. Emperor Kangxi's armies, both the Manchu Eight Banners and the Han Green Standard Army, fought many campaigns under his rule, including pushing back Russian incursions in northern Manchuria and establishing the Amur River as the northern boundary of the Qing Empire. However, Emperor Kangxi's reign was not only a time of military resurgence and conquest for China, but also carried intellectual, cultural, and linguistic advances. Early in his reign, Emperor Kangxi wanted to bring former Ming officials back into the bureaucracy to more thoroughly syncretize Manchu and Han cultures and prevent them from trying to stage anti-Qing rebellions. He recruited many Han scholars to begin working on a dictionary of all Chinese characters, a significant task considering the size of the Chinese writing system. He ordered this work to be completed within five years, which meant that the original edition did contain some errors and other shortcomings, 
but it covered over 47,000 characters, including many which were archaic and no longer in regular use. For a point of reference, most of modern Chinese is contained within 3,500 characters, though college graduates may know around 8,000. Although the Kangxi Zudian, or Kangxi Dictionary as the work came to be known, had its share of flaws, it would be amended and refined during the reigns of subsequent emperors, and eventually contained over 49,000 characters. In addition to the dictionary, Emperor Kangxi also sponsored an encyclopedia of ancient China. This work would not be completed in his lifetime, but when it was finished, it would include 800,000 pages contained within 10,000 volumes, filled with information about weather, geography, government, history, and classical literature. He also sponsored two curated collections of Tang Dynasty-era poetry. All of these projects had a broader purpose besides being catnip for Han scholars. Emperor Kangxi wooed these scholars over time with gifts and gradually drew them into his circle of influence by requesting their assistance with matters in which they were knowledgeable, and eventually convincing them to accept government posts in the capital or in the provinces. Regardless of his political ulterior motives, Emperor Kangxi's contributions to Chinese culture, and especially to the cultural heritage of Han people, went a long way to not only convincing his more skeptical subjects that the Qing dynasty was a legitimate ruling dynasty, but also preserving these cultural works for centuries to come. During Emperor Kangxi's reign, the world was getting smaller. European traders were a regular feature of the East Asian economy, and throughout the region, leaders needed to make decisions regarding what to do about missionaries, trading companies, and emissaries from distant but wealthy foreign governments. The Qing dynasty proved remarkably friendly toward Jesuit missionaries especially, who were valued by the state more for their multilingual capabilities rather than any religious edification. The local Jesuits helped negotiate treaties, communicate with regional powers, and advise the Qing leaders on customs and etiquette of their neighboring powers. The Jesuits were so vital to the Qing dynasty's foreign policy that in 1692, Emperor Kangxi issued an edict declaring Christianity a protected religion and forbidding any persecution, official or otherwise. However, this raised a critical issue, which became the subject of some controversy within the Roman Catholic Church, the issue of ancestor worship. Considered a cornerstone of righteous Confucians, Chinese Christians largely continued visiting familial temples and paying worshipful respect to their forebears to observe the principle of filial piety. Back in the Vatican, the issue came to the Pope's attention. The Jesuits argued that the practice should be recognized as an innocuous cultural quirk, and thus tolerated by the Church. The Dominican order, however, objected, and argued vociferously that it was a form of idolatry, and thus could not be tolerated. In 1715, the Pope reached a verdict and declared in a papal bull that Chinese ancestor worship was idolatry, and therefore forbidden outright for Chinese Roman Catholic converts. Emperor Kangxi's official response was to ban any further missionary activity in China and accuse the church of causing trouble and damaging the harmony of his realm. The Jesuits were gradually expelled, with the last being barred from the nation in 1721. Although the existing Chinese Christians would continue practicing their religion largely in secret, it would be another hundred years before missionaries were permitted to once again preach their beliefs in China without fear of expulsion or punishment. 
Emperor Kangxi died in 1722 after gathering several of his sons to his deathbed and reiterating his choice of heir. During his final decade, there had been some questions over which of his many sons the emperor wanted to succeed him, with some gaining the title of crown prince before displeasing their father and being stripped of their title in favor of another brother who would go through the cycle anew. Officially, Emperor Kangxi chose his 11th son, Yin Zhen, to succeed him, and he is remembered as Emperor Yongzheng. We will discuss Emperor Yongzheng's triumphs and mistakes as well as the further achievements and blunders of the Qing dynasty next season. Next time, we'll visit the kingdom of Chosan, who was just starting to recover from the devastating invasion of Japan, only to find themselves on the receiving end of another devastating invasion, this time by their neighbors to the north. Until then, thank you for listening. If you would like access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes, please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan. Thank you.